Welcome to PPMD's Living Duchenne, a podcast bringing together community voices to talk about navigating the Duchenne experience. Welcome to our podcast, Living Duchenne. I'm Rachel Poisky. I'm a Duchenne mom, and I will be your host for this series. We are doing this series because it is also a part of Duchenne Action Month, Duchenne Awareness Month. And what we are focusing on in this month is transitions to independence. So we thought for this series, we wanted to take some time and think about what does it look like to help our individuals with Duchenne transition to independent living throughout their lives. So we have some great experts here today. I am so excited for them and what they are going to bring to this podcast. The first one I want to introduce you is a fellow Duchenne mom of mine and friend on the journey. We've been been together for quite a while, Uh, Gretchen Inger, and she teaches high school English and she's also an avid runner. She's always running for the Duchenne Marathons. Um, she and her husband, Brian, have two grown sons, Alex, who's a civil engineer, and Nick, who recently earned his bachelor's degree in computer science from the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. And Gretchen is also um, Wisconsin's PPMD Connect coordinator. So she has helped a ton of families walk through the journey with Duchenne. So Gretchen, I'm so excited to have you here today with us. And then we also have another friend of mine. And when I think about how I want my son with Duchenne to be independent and live, I look at Angela. She has just accomplished so much in her life. And um, she is a native Texan. And she's so she's already great because she's a Texan. <laughs> and she's been teaching elementary school for 21 years in Houston. At the age of 16 months, she was diagnosed with spinal muscle atrophy type 2. She and her husband loved traveling and watching college football, along with supporting the Camp Girl Foundation. And her latest endeavor is serving as the lead ability advisor at her company. She has a new company, Cobble and Stone Consulting, which helps people with disabilities lead independent lives. So welcome, Angela and Gretchen. I'm so excited that we can have this conversation. Our topic today is really how do we help the individuals with Duchenne that we know and love become independent, which is a challenge in many, many aspects, as we know. And you may be thinking that um, this may be just for, you know, parents who have older kids and things like that. But actually, this conversation should start from the very beginning. It should start even when they're little. So I hope for all you parents of littles out there that you're going to find a lot of information that I've missed along the way. So let's just kind of start with, I'm just going to ask, I'm going to start with Gretchen. Just tell me a little bit about what you have done. I know Nick is all graduated and living independently. What are some things you started from the very beginning to help him become more independent with Duchenne? Well, I don't know that I can take full credit. I think he did develop into someone that has his own mind and asserts himself. But when he was in third grade, I saw that he could be overprotected by his teachers and that I could swoop in and save him all the time and that that might not be to his benefit. So I I tried to make sure that 
he that he stayed safe and that safety was important, but that I didn't limit what he could do. And uh, early on, you know, if he could um, be involved and ask questions, he's naturally pretty reticent. He's pretty shy. Um, I think a lot of guys are comfortable with their parents speaking for them. And I see that even in, in my high school students who do not have any kind of physical disability whatsoever. Um, if the parents will swoop in and take over for them, they sit back and they let that happen. And so I, um, you know, when, if they had a, something going on at school, uh, academically or um, physically related, he would tell me about it and we might brainstorm how he would fix it. But I was not a call the school kind of person. I was like, Nick, what are you going to do about this? How are you going to address it and sort of put him in charge of that? Uh, I think if there had been uh, something that did not meet to our satisfaction after he did it on his own, I think I would have stepped in. Uh, in, in my recollection, I, I can't think of uh, any time that something small like that, he was not able to troubleshoot and brainstorm and work here with teachers himself. And I think that was, that's the biggest thing is making sure that he had his own voice. Yeah, I like that, not answering for them. I think we all do that. And as you said, a lot of individuals with Duchenne have social anxiety and they don't want to, you know, go up and ask for the ketchup at a fast food restaurant or whatever. And it's how do we push them to, to do that and to have their own voice so that they can. Yeah, I love that. Angela, tell me what, you know, you are independent woman, married full-time job. How, how did your parents get you there? What, what, what happened? Tell me, I need, I need the secret. I need the recipe. Um, we, we would probably need them on this podcast too. And, and, um, but I, I really credit them so much. So my dad, um, was a hippie from California and my mom was just a Southern Texas girl and they kind of met in the middle of their parenting. Right. So my mom wanted to hold on just a little bit more. And my dad was like, let her go. And so, um, you know, my disease process, um, took effect very early on. And I used a wheelchair from the time I was five. I went into my first motorized wheelchair when I was in sixth grade. So, I mean, it was definitely obvious when I was little that I had um, some very serious physical limitations, but the conversations that my parents had um, was always with the, the plan in mind of that I was going to lead an independent life. So literally like from a very early age, like we, we would talk about what am I going to do when I grow up and where, where am I um, going to go to college? And, and you know, all, all of those things kind of like my parents already knew that they wanted me to live my, my life to the fullest, not necessarily life to the fullest as a person with, dis with a disability, but just life to the fullest. And so what that looked like um, for me was, was just talking about it from an early age. And I completely agree um, with you guys of talking um, about kind of pushing people to speak up for themselves. I think that was something extremely early that my mom did. I, um, she tells stories of when we went to restaurants and people would ask her what I wanted. I mean, when I was, you know, five years old and she said, well, I, th I think you should ask her. And so, um, and not forcing me in an, a terrible way, but really just encouraging me. And I, I think that that's really um, how that happened. I love that talking about the future. And I think sometimes Duchenne families are scared and they don't want to do that, but we know we've made such strides in research and 
treatments and things like that, then we need to be thinking about that way. And that that's probably maybe where some of us, you know, have gotten to where we, we were so focused on, I'm speaking for me rather than maybe every parent out there, but I can't be the only one that was kind of so focused on early treatment and health that you kind of forgot some of those things maybe about let's look toward the future. What does it look like? So that's really great. Just starting that dialogue so early. Okay. So Gretchen, I know what some of the Duchenne moms out there are going to say. They're going to say, how did you let your kid go to college by himself? Weren't you scared? Weren't you afraid? He was going to fall. There was danger around every corner. Like, how did you let go to do that? Well, I may have been a little neglectful, maybe. I I don't know. Um, We are fortunate that we are 30 minutes away from the university. So I could go there. And we did go there his first year when he was in the dorms every Sunday, maybe both years he was in the dorms. Every Sunday we would, we would go and, you know, take him whatever groceries he needed. Sometimes we take him out to eat um, or bring him food if the weather was bad. Um, So we were close enough that it was, that it was okay. He expressed an interest, maybe his junior year in high school in going away. So we worked hard to make that happen. And uh, at the time there was an agency that would coordinate uh, his aides to come in and to help him and coordinate his care. The university itself, um, you know, he wanted to be in a dorm. I think he had his choice of dorms like everybody else. And when they picked his dorm and what his room would be, uh, they outfitted it so it was completely accessible. So he could wave, he had a stick attached to his wheelchair and he could wave his hot card, his ID card uh, in front of the sensor and the door would open. And the RA knew, you know, he knew to call the RA if, if he needed help. I think with cell phones, um, you know, we have great ability to communicate. I wasn't as worried that he was stuck. He was able to advocate for himself. Um, if I can tell you a quick anecdote, though, uh, the very first time I sent him away was for the, there was a three-week orientation. And it was mainly for students who had had IEPs with learning disabilities going away to college. So it was prep, um, just in like coursework, taking classes. One of the classes was study skills, I think. And he stayed in the dorms for the week, but then would come home on the weekend. And when I picked him up after the first week, I said, well, how was it? And he said, well, I had a little trouble the first night. The aide, because he had never really used his lift before, the Hoyer lift, we'd had it, but we'd never used it. But the aides had to use the lift. And he said, they had him up, you know, naked in his lift and they couldn't get it to lower. Oh, it had no. been stuck. And so the aid from the agency, like they got a hold of the RA, couldn't do it. And so they had to get the campus police come and lower oh. him in the thing. And <laughs> dude didn't text me. He didn't call. I'm sure we talked at some point during the week, but it wasn't until he was coming home from the weekend. He was like, well, that was a little exciting, but you know, made it through and it was okay. So, um, you know, he, he got through and, um, you know, if he had called me frantic, I would have panicked, but uh, he, he did not. He waited until the, till the weekend. And I suppose when, you know, if, if you know that there are going to be obstacles and you're going to figure out a way to do that, then um, it's okay because you know you're going to make it through somehow. I think that's a great point is helping them know there's going to be obstacles. There's going to be things they're going to have to deal with and problem solve. And that's expected. It's, it's not mm-hmm. going to be just a clear road. 
Well, let's talk a little bit more about caregivers, because I know that's something that some Duchenne families use and some Duchenne families just really, you know, don't either don't know, don't have the resources or some are not comfortable having caregivers. So, Angela, I would like you just to talk a little bit about that and how caregivers have been helpful to you and um, just that anything you can tell us that's kind of encouraging with that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think of the um, the milk commercial that said got milk, you know, people wear the shirt like I legit would wear a shirt that says got a caregiver because I just firmly believe so much that as soon as families can to have a caregiver come in and start providing care. Um, I, I even if it's literally for 30 minutes a week, just that idea in a a young person's head of my mom or my dad is not the only person that can take care of me, right? Because I think that's kind of the mentality that that they, and myself included, started to develop like my, my mom's the only one who knows how to do this. And so the earlier you do that, just like when we're learning new things, the earlier you learn it, the more your brain is able to absorb and accept it. And so I think, um, you know, hiring a neighbor, hiring a, a friend or a cousin, or I mean, truly it can be anyone. I Going to college, I lived with um, my best friend from high school who was also my age. She'd never really taken care of me before and we were kind of thrown to the wolves. And I was, you know, an hour and a half away from my parents. So it wasn't something that, that they were nearby that they could come rescue me. And I, you know, most certainly have stories as well. I can um, tell you, I couldn't find her. She was in class. And y'all, I went to school in the 90s, like cell phones were the size of my wheelchair. So (laughs) it wasn't like I could text somebody and I couldn't find her. And I had to go to the bathroom so bad. And um, I literally knocked on like three doors of my dorm room. And finally somebody opened it and I was like, hi, you don't know me. And I live three doors down. I use this thing. It's called the Hoyer lift. It looks like a human crane. And I can totally tell you how to do it. But I have got to go to the bathroom so bad. Um, and that person was like, of course, uh, you know, the worst they were going to say was no. And I was going to go to the person that lives next door to her. So, um, and then that person came over and ended, ended up being a great backup, um, caregiver for me. So, um, I could literally do five podcasts on care and what that really looks like. But, um, in my adult life, I have five, no, I have seven caregivers on my caregiving team right now. Um, cause I think it's just so important not to have only one person, just like it's important not to just have your mom or not to just have your dad because things are going to happen. And, and you know, there's ice storms or there's blackouts, which we've dealt with here in Houston yes. just this year and people couldn't get to me, but I have backup after backup after backup of people who are, who are going to be there. So um, again, I would just emphasize getting care as, as quickly as you can afford it. And it can be a part of your life. Um, you know, emotionally and mentally, all of that really prepares you for that transition to independence. Can you just share a little bit for maybe those families who haven't had a caregiver at all, Angela, like what are some things and tasks that your caregiver helps you with during the day and how much are they in your home and and how does it feel to have them in your home and that kind of thing? Absolutely. So my husband is not my caregiver. He is an able-bodied man. And during Hurricane Harvey, he had to help me. And, and it was crazy because my hair looked insane because <laughs> guys are not good at doing that. So we, I very much have caregivers to do all of my daily tasks. And as, you know, a wife, 
uh, Justin is the chef. And so my caregivers, um, I'm, I should be in charge of dishes since he's the cook. Um, but I can't. And so my caregivers come in and do, um, you know, tasks like dishes and light laundry. And to be real honest, our dog had an outbreak of fleas the other day and I begged my caregiver to help me bathe my dog. Um, but we have a great relationship and that's another thing. That's a really important piece of it is accepting help and, and doing it with grace and appreciation. And so people want to help you when you learned how to, how to appreciate them. Um, and so, you know, with that being said, so kind of light housekeeping is really how it, uh, you know, can start, but then moving on to the physical tasks of using my Hoyer lift to help me transfer and into the restroom, um, getting me in bed, helping me shower, do my hair. And I'm like super high maintenance when it comes to my hair. So, um, but again, I, I know how to ask for help and I do it in a way that makes people want to help me. And I'm, I'm sure, um, you know, anybody who has a caregiver knows that when you bark orders, like you often do to your mom or your dad, they're not going to come back. And so, that takes me again back to have a caregiver in as early as possible to really develop those communications, communication skills that are very different from how you communicate with your parents. That's great. And by the way, your hair always looks awesome. So <laughs> I really mean that. I can promise you that Justin did not do it every time you see me. It, was not, it is not husband hair when you and I see each other. <laughs> I need to see a picture during the snowstorm of the, the husband hair. I gotta, oh, I gotta get a picture of that. No one should see that, Rachel. No one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, Gretchen, tell me a little bit, like how much involved are you in, you know, helping Nick set up some of those caregivers and things like that? Well, his primary caregiver for the last um, two years um, have caregivers have been his roommates. And one has been his best friend since they were three. And the other was that kid's roommate the first year that he was in the dorms. So that guy um, graduated a semester early. He's moved to a neighboring town, but still comes and provides care. So I would echo Angela's sentiment that you need more than one for sure. Uh, you sh- and he should have more than two. You know, like like Nick's hair, he's not high maintenance. He doesn't, you know, like... <laughs> You know, somebody's got to help him go to the bathroom, get him up, feed him, give him his meds and put his headset on him. And that's, you know, kind of what his, his, his needs are. Yeah. Um, but he is in the process of hiring his next caregiver, somebody to back up Ryan when um, the other one moves or can't anymore, have another one. And um, that guy is going to move up from actually Texas. They're friends that, that, that know each other. And, um, you know, he needs to have more hired ones that he just hires. There's someone from the agency that he gave the application to. And, uh, you know, he, she may have filled out a little bit of the application, uh, but she hasn't finished it yet. And so I sort of need to poke and prod a little bit more about that. But he's, he's 22 and he's not totally into mom telling him what to do. Like he knows he's supposed to do it and work on it. So I'm, I'm not as involved other than just asking the questions, maybe suggesting they do have someone who's going to come in, another roommate who's going to move in, and uh, her job is going to be that light housekeeping. So she won't be uh, a caretaker with, with the urinal and the bathing and the showering, um, but uh, she will do the light housekeeping and the, maybe some cooking and some, some dishes because those guys in the dishes and the cooking. Oh, uh, gosh. So just, I'm, I'm not a 
helicopter mom. I'm not a lawnmower mom. And sometimes it's probably a a flaw. I I should do more of that. But um, I just kind of stand back and make comments every once in a while. What do you think? Or ask a question. Well, what do you think about this? Have you talked to them yet? Have you sold this out? And uh, he's on it because it's his care and it's his independence. And now that he's out of school, he's, you know, has a paid internship right now. He'll be looking for things after that. Uh, we're looking into setting up his ABLE account because I haven't done that yet. Um, Angela was talking earlier about a, a different Medicaid kind of program. Different thing about that. Again, something I haven't looked into yet. Well, and we'll talk about that in just a little bit, some definite resources for independence. Um, but before that, I do want to address one thing. Obviously, Angela, you're super high-functioning, and Nick, very high-functioning. I know we have some, you know, guys and girls with Duchenne who also have some significant learning issues and executive function issues and things like that. So independence may not look exactly like it looks for the both of you, but I still think there's a level of independence. We always can, we can always keep pursuing more independence than what we have. So I don't know, are there any, some small stair step things Maybe Angela and some of your work with um, your company and some people with disabilities. What are some, if a parent's on here saying, that's great, I could never get my child to be there. What are some things, stair steps, small things they can move toward independence that, one, I think it gives the individual with Duchenne a lot more self-esteem, right, and feeling like they can take another step, and also gives the parents and caregivers a little relief. So, are there just any stair step kind of things that you would recommend? Several things that I would say as far as, you know, kind of some stair steps towards independence for those folks that, um, you know, maybe don't have the, the ability to completely live on your own. Um, I would start by making a list of like, what are the potential things that your child could do and make that list with your child, without your child, um, you know, kind of think of, what is it that they that they could accomplish if we eliminated some of those, a few of those barriers, you know, through caregiving, um, through um, a, a job or, or what, whatever it is? I, I would literally just list them out and say, okay, what steps do we need to take to make that happen? Literally, I, I know so many families um, of children with special needs and disabilities that, I mean, they're with their child all the time constantly. And that's not good for anybody. No one should be with one person all the time. And so even starting with date night out or, you know, mom's day out or dad's day out, like whatever that looks like, how can we make that happen? Um, who, who can be a part of our lives that, that could help us? Because that is independence as well. Spending time away from the person that you are connected at the hip with um, is, is an important step. And then you're, you know, as you build up to that, then you're thinking, okay, now what does the next step look like? And so, you know, just as you said, kind of stair step, they set some very short-term goals and long-term goals and think of how we can get there. That's great. And I think, you know, something I've even seen with my son, with, um, some of this virtual is it's been easier for him to maybe take care of a few things virtually that he might've been a little more nervous, um, like with his community college uh, meeting with a disabilities advisor and things like that. So I think there's some things technology wise that help them be a little more independent. They can go online and register for things or they can go online and even do the grocery shopping. Now, you know, that I think that's a task that um, 
some people can do is go on and do the family grocery shopping. Mm-hmm. Although I might have a shopaholic in my house, so that might be a difficult situation. But um, I think there's different things like that that they can also contribute to the household. So even if, you know, they're going to be in your home, you know, and maybe college isn't the same option or something or college away is not an option. What are some things they can do to contribute? And with everything that can be delivered now (laughs) and all the online, there's ways that they can contribute to the house that way. So I think that's something else. Rachel, Uh, I would also say, and I'll just say it very briefly, but I think it's important for kids to have mentors and mentors are uh, those people that look like them, but they're grown up, right? So mm -hmm. someone who's leading a successful life um, that has similar attributes to them um, in regards to having Duchenne. I think that, that that's just a key and, you know, kind of mobilizing people with Duchenne to kind of be those those mentors is, is something that's important because I know when I see someone like me doing something great, that makes me want to do something great as well. I love that, seeking out some mentors so you don't have to be the one who's constantly even pushing toward transition when they see someone else doing it. That gives them, you know, I, I definitely um, took the opportunity. My college, my roommate in college uh, uses, has um, cerebral palsy and has been in a wheelchair her, her whole life. And so I took my son with Duchenne to see her apartment and to see how she lived independently. And that was such a great thing because there were so many things she could show him that I hadn't even thought about, about how she preps meals and what she does when she needs help to get do something and just seeing how our apartment was outfitted. So I agree. I think that can be such a great, especially because this is new territory for them to be independent, but it's also new territory for you as a parent. And so you need some mentors along the way as well. That's yeah. why I'm talking to Gretchen right now. I think as we're moving toward the end, I do want us to just list any resources like the ABLE account. Is there what are some resources that can definitely help you along the way with this? So Gretchen, I'll just start with you. What are some resources you found that have been helpful? DVR, for sure. Um, when your child is in high school, the you know DVR can help with um, looking at their, their needs, their interests, and get supports that they might need for, for school. Um, and then... Uh, Gretchen, what is D? I don't know what that is. I don't know that we have. Uh, it's yeah, the, I don't think the Texans know what DVR. Really? Is. Okay, I, I thought I just thought it was national. It's the Department of Vocational mm-hmm. Rehabilitation. Um, okay. I, I thought that was in every state. Um, it is. But I think it's just called something different in every state. Yeah. So vocational okay. rehab. Got it. Yeah, and they will look at what his needs are. They paid for a pen, so if he took notes, his, his hand wouldn't get tired. And he had training on that. I don't think he ever used it because he was on his computer the, the whole time. Um, but also the, when um, Angela spoke to you, how you can have people come in and those things that you can do if you're not going to college. Um, I would also say there are so many ways that your child can avoid ever leaving the house that it's important that caregivers and other folks also get them out of the house. Mm-hmm. So even if the, you know, even if their future does not include college, even if it doesn't include a paying job, it doesn't have to be confined to the four walls of their bedroom or, um, or their, their living room. You can have someone take them somewhere, you know, you can go to the zoo, you can go to the museum, they can, they can go to the store and, and do shopping. And I, I think that's important. There are uh, resources at, if they do go to school, 
um, like Whitewater has an awesome center for students with disabilities. While they would not provide the caregivers, they are certainly a resource that can help with what those needs are and you know, help him with finding and, and, and getting them on his own. And so I would say like, like schools, checking out the schools and then whatever the Department of Vocational Rehabilitation is called in your state, they, they come and they work with the special education department in schools, or at least they, they do in Wisconsin. And they're part of the transition team that starts, I think, maybe as early as freshman year, you know, they always ask in the IEP meetings, what does your child plan to do after school? What, what do you want to do after high school? And a lot of kids still say, you know, professional basketball player, or, you know, I want to be an astronaut. And depending on the, whoever's running that IEP, you know, we, we get reality or we don't, but there are certainly resources that you can tap into at school to help you. Yeah. I love that. And also I think just a little bit where you're talking about getting out is also volunteering. You know, that's something that um, they can contribute in a lot of different ways. I know a mom who just recently told me her son's volunteering at the library, you know, so that even if a job is not on the table for some reason, that volunteering is on the table. So that's an option too. So, okay, Angela, what a, what is on your list? And we will put all these on the website, by the way, any um, kind of resources, but is there maybe top two you would say, Angela? Oh, definitely an ABLE account. Like when you stop listening to this podcast, when you make it to the end, stop what you're doing, get online and research your ABLE account um, because an ABLE account um, can be set up and it can start now and you can contribute money that will be sheltered and protected from them still qualifying for Medicaid. And that, that Medicaid is going to be really important for most families um, because affording care and, and um, you know, supplemental insurance and all of that, um, it, it's, it's difficult. And so having Medicaid in place um, ready to go once they um, reach that age where that's appropriate. That's so important. But they're going to ask you, okay, let's let's look at your resources. And an able account doesn't count against you. You can put in up to fifteen thousand dollars a year, and that that money can grow. And I think it can, in some instances, it can grow up to as big as five hundred thousand dollars. And they can use it for anything. And so it, the sooner you can get into uh, getting an ABLE account ready and, and start saving is great. Um, I also know special needs trusts. I actually just started one. Um, I'm set to inherit some money from um, a relative when they pass away. And that could um, throw me into um, having too many, having too much funds and not qualifying for Medicaid. So even as a school teacher of 20 plus years, oh my gosh, I can't believe I've been teaching for 20 plus years. Um, I still qualify for Medicaid and as a married person because I have something called Medicaid buy-in. And so despite my salary um, and my education level and my married status, I still get state funding um, to pay a very expensive caregiving bill. So um, ABLE account, Medicaid buy-in, special needs trusts. Um, and I have a wonderful lawyer for a special needs trust if you're in Texas and you would like that reference, but, um, and she's very reasonable. So um, yeah, those, there's so much and becoming well-versed in, in your resources is important too. Yeah, that's great. And I know we just recently set up a special needs trust and an ABLE account for our son and it seems overwhelming, but it was not that bad. Yeah. And it just kind of gives you a little bit of peace of mind. And, you know, we did the 
some medical power of attorney too. And then we also, a resource I will tell you about, I don't know if it's in every state, but we did something called supportive decision-making mm-hmm. where um, for our son who may not, you know, is staying at home for a little bit longer um, and might need some help with some dis- problem solving decisions. We did a document that just basically said, we're going to talk before you make any major decision. It's not guardianship. doesn't take away his rights or independence. Uh, sometimes that's necessary in a special needs family, but for us, that wasn't what we needed, but we did need something extra. And that supportive decision-making document was great because it just opened up a conversation for us where we said, okay, we're going to get on the same page when you're trying to make a major life decision. So I recommend that as well. So all these parents and grandparents, everybody out here listening, I know you may feel a little overwhelmed saying, I've got all these things going on. And on top of it, I'm trying to, I'm supposed to make my loved one with Duchenne independent. But I'm just going to encourage you, just do one thing. Just think of one thing a week that you can move them more that way. Maybe it's them helping make the grocery list. Maybe it's them making one phone call. You know, even with your younger kids, to start with the end in mind. How do you want them to be an adult? And what does that look like? You know, we've got a lot of hope in our community, a lot of great things. And uh, so we want uh, these um, guys and girls with Duchenne to um, thrive in adulthood. It's a new conversation for us. So uh, we we weren't having this conversation 10 years ago, but we are having it now. And that's exciting. But there's some work we've got to do to, to help them. So just want to encourage you all with that. So as we're going to end every podcast that we have, I want just to ask Gretchen and Angela, I want to ask you each one question. One thing you know to be true about living with Duchenne. Gretchen? Uh, I would say it is. it has been an opportunity for me to meet people such as yourself, Rachel, uh, whom I, you know, otherwise I, I would not have come in contact with, but who have enriched my life beyond measure and helped me with not only parenting decisions and parenting a kid with Duchenne, um, you know, questions, but um, they really enriched my life. And so I'm very grateful. Love it. Angela? I would just say as an, a friend of many, many people with Duchenne, um, I know for a fact that you can live a um, happy and rewarding and enriched and, and life um, that, that you feel independent. I, I know that it's possible. Um, and I think just having that hope of, of possibility of being independent is everything. It's great. Thank you all so much. This has just been a great conversation for me. I feel encouraged. I feel inspired. And uh, just to remind you again, we will have these resources up on our um, website and you know, we want to be here to walk this journey with you, especially as we help um, individuals with Duchenne transition to independence. So thanks for joining us, and we will see you next time on our Living Duchenne podcast.